Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we are here every week to help you get um, broadband and telehealth everywhere it needs to be. Our topic for today is going to be broadband in the black rural south, and our guest is Dr. Dominique Harrison, who is the Director of Technology Policy at the Joint Center for uh, Political and Economic Studies. She recently uh, published a, um, a report that's called uh, Affordability and Availability, Expanding Broadband in the Black Rural South. Dr. Harrison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And I'm very happy to be here as well. Um, uh, I'd like to, um, you know, I get started. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about um, the Joint Center. I have talked to folks there hmm, in a few years. So, um, you know, what's, what's going on? And, uh, and then we'll go into the, the report itself. Sure thing. So last year, the Joint Center celebrated its 50th year anniversary. So the Joint Center was founded in 1970 to support newly elected black officials who were moving from civil rights activism into governance. And the Joint Center quickly evolved into America's black think tank. It became the policy hub of government officials and public intellectuals concerned about the future of African-American communities. And today we explore staff diversity on the Hill, the challenges and opportunities of the changing nature of work for black communities, economic policy and the status of black communities, and lastly, tech policy. And so our tech policy, in which I lead, is dedicated to exploring the impact of emerging technologies and developing policy solutions to improve the lives of black communities. The tech program is focused on what I call three program pillars. The first is platform accountability, which includes our work on voter suppression ads, misinformation, and disinformation. The second program pillar is privacy and algorithmic fairness. So that is personal information that is used in ways that can be discriminatory. And we're doing some research there that is looking at um, that kind of topic as it relates to housing, employment, and lending. So excited about the future work there. And our last program pillar is broadband access and adoption which focuses on the kind of policies and programs that we need to ensure that black communities have access to high-speed, affordable, quality broadband. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about our broadband work. Coolness. Well, let's talk about this report that you um, just uh, came out. I, uh, interesting, I was writing a, um, a write-up on a, another report, and they cited your um, research and stuff. So I, I said, whoa, this is pretty, pretty cool stuff. So you tell me, what do we got going here with this? Yeah, so we were really excited to, you know, dig into some data as it relates to black residents in the South and just a little history. I mean, in terms of why we chose to focus on that area, um, Booker T. Washington explained that the term black belt was first used to describe a region with rich and dark soil that enslaved people were taken to because it was most profitable for agriculture. And the mm. term was used to describe the large numbers of African Americans in the area. And over the years, researchers have defined the black belt using various formulations, including southern counties with populations that are at least 40% black. 
The focus of our report overlaps with but differs from this black belt because we exclude metropolitan counties in the region. So to understand the rural black belt, we looked at rural counties with populations that are 35% black or higher spread across 10 states. Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. And we define 152 counties across those 10 states as the black rural south. And so we collected this original data in order to isolate counties that were part of the black rural south to understand the region's distinctive characteristics relative to other parts of the nation. You know, too often national broadband conversations focused on rural America conflate rural with white and point to racial disparities in broadband adoption as an affordability challenge facing black residents of the metropolitan areas. And so these discussions rarely give attention to the unique plight of black, rare, black residents of rural com communities. So some of the things that actually came out in our study um, that we found is that, you know, the pandemic put a spotlight on digital equity, but our national conversations really grappled with the deep inequity facing the Black rural South and the way it amplifies the impact of structural racism. And what we saw is that our research shows that 38% of African-American residents in the Black rural South lack home internet access, and that's nearly double the rate of white residents in the same region. One in four black residents in the rural South, that is 25.8%, lack even the option to subscribe to high-speed broadband compared with 3.8% of Americans overall. And lastly, another significant founding is that 36% of black students in the rural South lack high-speed broadband, more than double the national average of 15.8%. So those are just some of the major things that we uncovered, but there's a lot more to dig into in the report. Mm -hmm. So of the, you know, the, the general um, layout of where things are, um, were there two or three elements that were particularly um, either surprising or, uh, you know, how does how it, was, I'm sorry, how do these, these um, points, uh, major points, how do they affect, you know, your thoughts on the, on the report itself? Yeah, I mean, we'll certainly digging down into the data and just being able to understand that black rural residents had such a significant lack of access to broadband, and that's based upon the uh, availability of services. That means that there's no broadband infrastructure there or that services are um, not at the speed as defined um, by the FCC of, of what broadband is, and that's 25 down, three upload speed megabytes per second. Um, so that was astounding, right? We didn't have those kind of that kind of information before to understand what that specific uh, community is facing. Also, as you think about um, and we covered the kind of poverty rates that exist in the Black rural South, coupled with the understanding of how costly broadband services are, that we realize that um, affordability is another challenge for that community, right? Uh, they're not able to afford those kind of broadband services because a significant amount of the community lives in poverty. Poverty. Currently, 49% of black children in the black rural south live in poverty compared to 18% of white children in the region and 19% of all sh uh, children nationwide. So much of this problem stems from a number of kind of 
challenges across um, since history, uh, of America's history in that region, when we think about the enslavement of black people there, when we think about sharecropping as primary mode of jobs for many African Americans, um, and also as we think about low wages that exist there, uh, schools that are not doing so well, um, hospitals that have left, and also companies that have chosen to develop and grow their business um, elsewhere. All of these kinds of dynamics um, are uh, impacting the kind of, um, you know, context and ecosystem in which makes the digital divide such um, a prominent issue in that region. I gotcha. I got gotcha. So it's sort of historically it has been so impoverished that as you try to bring people out of that um, depth of, of, of poverty, there isn't a lot of, um, oh, what can I say? There, there's not a lot of resources and, and so forth. Um, right. What were some of the um, uh, recommendations then that you uh, get or put together in response to your findings? Yeah, so there are uh, around 10 recommendations that we have within um, the report, and I'm happy to see a lot of the language is already uh, exists in the infrastructure bill. And really what's mm -hmm. important is that um, there must be equity at the center of, you know, this kind of legislation um, and this implementation across the U.S. So, you know, the infrastructure bill directs the SEC to oppose reforms to its universal service program, which we think is really important. But the success mm -hmm. of that directive depends on whether regulators require broadband service providers to offer affordable options to low-income households. You know, as I stated before, the affordability of service is a, um, a, an issue for low-income Americans who are the ones who are not connected to the Internet. So there needs to be affordable options for these kinds of community members. Um, this includes having a permanent uh, internet subsidy program that allows um, communities, individuals to choose their own broadband service provider, right, the best option for them. Um, and we need to update the amount of money that is given. Currently, that's $30 within the infrastructure plan. And it's a lot better than the $9.95 that existed there before, but $30 may not be even enough. And so um, we hope that there is a permanent program for that for people to access the Internet. Thing is that you know the infrastructure includes that uh, the FCC should also make rules prohibiting the practice of digital redlining, and we know that this is a problem that is impacting uh, people of color in cities across the U.S. and it's also happening in rural communities. Um, that is that ISPs are choosing to provide quality, fast uh, services to wealthier, wider communities as opposed to connecting all Americans. And we've seen some research from this come from uh, the National Digital Inclusion um, Alliance and showing that some ISPs in New York and California have deliberately chosen not to connect specific community members, which often impacts low-income communities of color. So we're hoping to see some progress there. And then lastly, I would say another highlight is that state lawmakers must repeal legislation on the books in some states that prevents communities from offering their own public broadband. I mean, you know, there are arguments about competition being an issue as to why people don't have access, and some, uh, you know, scholars will differ on that argument. But in general, 
what I propose and what I say within the report is that people should have options, period. Um, most black Americans, their communities, they only have one service provider to choose from. And I think by eliminating these kind of legislations that prevents communities from having municipal broadband, um, eliminates the options. And usually when you have options, there is, um, you know, uh, competition in price, and that often will lower prices, uh, which will allow more and um, individuals to enter into having that access. And so those are just some of the things that I think that we really need to consider as we look to getting these, uh, you know, bills passed and, and, and to, the, to the finish line. Mm -hmm. In the situation that you're describing, where there are a multitude of challenges, um, how do you prioritize and say, okay, what's the first thing that we need to do, deal with first, and then what's the second? Um, because it would, it would seem like if there isn't some sort of hierarchy of, um, you know, how we deal with these problems, we can end up doing, uh, you know, very little, um, you know, across the board. So how, how do you sort of reconcile that issue? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a complex question. I mean, first, one of the things that I think about is that there are many states um, that don't even have uh, offices dedicated to solving issues as around broadband access. They don't even have CIOs or CTOs that uh, specifically focus their work on getting more community members connected. So that's mm -hmm. important, right, because I think that you need to capacity and you need the expertise to really focus on these challenges. A part of that is that you need data. You need to understand who is unserved, that is, where do people not have the opportunity to access broadband um, because there's just no infrastructure or maybe they do, they're not getting the speeds um, that would allow them to do work in school online. And so you need to do that research. You need to understand what's going on in your local community. So I think starting there, for me, honestly, is important because it's not a, a one solution fits all. Each community is different. And mm -hmm. um, there are communities that are, are not as impoverished and there are communities that um, are very impoverished or, you know, there are communities that have, um, you know, they maybe have a lot of spaces as it relates to anchor institutions, libraries, and school. And so you got to think about those dynamics, where the challenge is there, and actually how can those institutions help in solving the problem. So, a part of that, I think, is really kind of doing the work um, locally um, to build the capacity, understand the problem, and then begin the work to creating specific solutions um, that will get people online. Mm -hmm. well, um, I had an interview uh, with someone a couple of years ago, and she was from, uh, from Europe, I believe. Um, and uh, she had been in the U.S. for, I don't know, five, six years. And she was doing research, um, dealing with policy issues and so forth. And the thing that she found crazy was that um, there seemed to be a reluctance by policymakers to talk to the people who actually have the problem. They, 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 they shoot mm. her in her world it was, it seems like um, they almost went out of their way to ask, to not ask the people who have the problem. Do you find that to be um, the case? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of ways in which decisions are made and we don't talk to communities that are impacted or affected uh, by some problem. We want to create solutions without the in the um, input and perspective of community members. I think that happens across a number of aspects and areas of the world, really. Um, and I think that's a problem because you're coming up with solutions that don't, you don't even know will work. Uh, you're starting yeah. from a point of not even having all the information to know what the challenges and issues are. Um, similar mm -hmm. to, you know, international organizations going to different countries and saying, you know, these are the things that we've prescribed to you to help you get out of, lift out of poverty or et cetera or become better um, without even speaking to folks. That's called participatory research in which you're having direct conversations with people. So I think that um, that's important. Um, you need to know what are the challenges that people face in getting online or wanting to build um, more digital skills. Um, I was in a conversation about someone who was speaking to, you know, people maybe not wanting to um, learn or, you know, spend their time um, learning the digital skills or attending a class. And again, you have to understand why it is that they won't want to, to, to learn those skills. And maybe it's because they're juggling two or three jobs and they don't have the time. So mm -hmm. why not, if you start from there and speaking to them, that means that you need to create a program perhaps that people can earn while they learn right, and mm -hmm. it creates an mm -hmm. opportunity that they know that they can gain new skills, but also possibly gain a job after because they've gained these new skills. So the point is, is that, you know, to not talk to the people affected by a challenge or an issue is not going to lead you to the best solution in solving that problem. Yes, definitely. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, what I also think um, is sort of like the corollary of this problem is that the same way they the policymakers go out of their way to not ask the, the folks that are that are impacted, but they also don't seem to want to have uh, members of these communities that are impacted to actually be part of the solution. Right? What was described to me is, um, you know, you 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 um, you know you, you come in. You throw out all these numbers and so forth, and then when the people say, okay, well, then we have this idea that will make things better for us, right, no one wants to hear about it. It's almost as if, like, you cannot, as a poor person or as a low-income person, you obviously cannot think of great creative things, and I find that both condescending and very much um, counterproductive. I just want to make sure I'm not alone in that assessment, but. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I certainly think that is counterproductive and not positive at all. I mean, one of the parts of my, like, training as a researcher at Howard University was um, focusing on what, I, what is called multi-stakeholder governance, and that's really the fact that you have to have multiple people, different stakeholders, a part of the process of developing policy. That includes folks who, community organizations that work with people every day to provide social services. That includes, you know, government officials who are creating these kind of policies and have that kind of expertise um, in a specific subject matter. It also includes private companies, um, you know, bringing those people to the table to see, you know, inc incorporate those viewpoints as it relates to um, 
businesses and the opportunities that they provide. So in general, I do think it's, you know, um, counterproductive, and I don't think it's going to be successful, as, as successful, excuse me, as it could be if you mm-hmm. incorporated the ideas of people and the things that they experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I, yeah, there, there we are. Um, oh, by the way, before I forget, um, what is redlining, digital redlining, and how would I actually know if I am, you know, in a community that is suffering from digital redlining? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, it's hard to know, again, if you don't have the data, Um, But what we have found is that those who have created, you know, teams that are able to look at these issues, again, uh, like cities like New York or California who actually conducted research to understand if this was occurring, um, were able to find out if people were having that experience. Um, I think one of the ways you also find it out is by people complaining that, hey, I don't have Internet, but... Um, you know, when I walk down the block or something like that, I see that there is a Wi-Fi connection that I connect connect to or, or something mm-hmm. um, of that nature. But digital redlining, basically that term, um, you know, really is reflective of redlining that occurs in housing. And those, that was based off of specific policies and programs implemented by the United States government um, that allowed communities uh, to be sectioned off in ways um, that disconnected them from resources and opportunities. And so it occurs um, within the digital space because there are Internet service providers who are selective in how they choose to provide quality, um, fast broadband. And what the data shows is that Internet service providers are more likely to go to wealthier, denser, um, wider areas. So literally, you will find more ISPs and options in areas that have more people, that tend to have higher incomes, that tend to be uh, predominantly white, and et cetera. So that's what digital redlining is. And um, again, uh, unless you're going to, unless, you know, people may be complaining who are living in an apartment building or someone who lives at home and they recognize or realize that they don't have as fast service as someone else in a different community, um, then you're not going to really know. And that's just the challenge of it all is because you have to invest in understanding if that's occurring in your community um, and you have to invest uh, in that uh, to be able to uncover those kinds of issues that may be occurring. Right. Because I see a, a, a big problem, you know, we when we, when we want to make it a um, – an affordability issue, right? And you come up with these different uh, programs to facilitate, um, uh, fill, uh, you know, making things more affordable. But I feel mm-hmm. like part of the issue is that um, if you have historically not built up your infrastructure, um, you know, uh, fiber and all of that, um, if you give someone a subsidy, but you give them a subsidy for uh, services run over really bad um, uh, infrastructure, we're no better mm-hmm. off, really. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, again, I, I, you know, I, I say this a lot, but I'm just wondering, you know, do, do you see other, other people uh, coming up with the same assessment? Um, in terms, can you re, kind of rephrase your question for me? I'm sorry. 
Oh, okay. So um, if you if you are pushing a um, affordability uh, solution, mm-hmm. right, and you mm-hmm. basically give someone access to um, equipment that's l- less expensive, right? But right. if it is inferior um, equipment, um, the fact that it's in, that's a that it is affordable almost doesn't matter because you know you're 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 dealing with really a bad situation um, with the infrastructure before you even get to the issue of affordability. I I just wonder if other people if you think other people have the similar uh, assessment of, of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a lot of people who would argue, you know, those folks are the underserved that they may have internet home internet, but they don't have a 25 down, three up uh, megabytes per second uh, broadband. And even mm-hmm. that uh, definition of broadband speed, many have argued, is too low and that it needs to be revised for current, you know, kind of technical capabilities and standards. And so that is a challenge. I mean, it's like, yes, you could have an affordable option, but if it takes very a very long time to download uh software or download uh, whatever you need may need to do work or school, then it is inferior. And it's, you know, that's not fair or equitable um, in terms of because I don't have enough money, I can't get the same kind of quality and service of a resource that is needed um, to live life and to be healthy and happy. So um, I, I think that is a problem that many people, advocates, uh, would say is an important issue to address. And that's why it's important that there, um, you know, I keep stressing that not only should broadband services be affordable, but it should be quality, fast Internet um, so that we all have uh, the opportunity to do what we need to do online. Yes, I, I yeah, again, I agree. Um, have you been getting... Uh, a lot of favorability reporting or um, maybe, un, you know, where, where it's not unfavorable, where it's unfavorable. Um, when it comes to the um, the broadband benefit program, right, this with the EPB, uh, um, it was supposed to be a um, program to help uh, folks be able to afford broadband. But I have heard, you know, a lot of good things. But I've also heard a lot of, you know, questionable things. I mean, I was wondering, you know, on average, you know, what do you tend to hear about this program? I mean, I think on average, from what I hear, is that from a lot of advocates who have been in this space before I was probably even born, that this was like somewhat of a win for them to have a $50 Internet subsidy for low-income Americans to access the Internet. I mean, it was great, especially it came at a time where a lot of people were um, obviously relegated to home to to do school and work, um, but also a time when people lost jobs or did not have the income that they needed to be able to access these kinds of services. So I've heard a lot of positive, uh, um, you know, perspectives on that front. There are people, um, you know, in the when it was first uh, developed, who had issues in terms of it. They're not being, um, you know, it wasn't advertised or shared uh, information in, in enough languages that people, that Americans all over the U.S. would be able to understand and be able to, you know, work through online. So that's 
that's what I've heard before. Even the question, there was a question around should you or should you not even ask for, um, I think it was social security number or um, some other kind of personal identifiable information from folks because that may, you know, make people who are immigrants not want to share that information because they may, they may not be legal. Right. And so right. challenges like that or the challenge of the fact that the FTC didn't receive uh, money from Congress in terms of advertising the program, I know, is another kind of um, thing that people talk about. I think that's important um, in learning about prior programs that allowed subsidies um, for low-income Americans. Advertising is very important. If people don't know about the program, then how should they know to sign up and to get that subsidy? And so a lot mm. of that kind of advertisement of the program has been through community organizations um, or, you know, or people working directly in social services that are able to share um, that information with people. And so, um, you know, in general, I think it's a win because there is a resource that people can take advantage of to access services. But certainly there's always going to be drawbacks or challenges to any programs um, that you, you know, put out there for people in communities. Right. No, that, that makes sense. Um, I mean, one of the things that I have, um, you know, witnessed up close and personal, uh, I helped a couple of people um, go through the process, right, to get registered and, and all of that. But the, you know, so the, uh, you know, a couple of the benefits of the program, it was uh, what was needed. Uh, it was reasonably fast to get through the process. Um, and, uh, but then at the same time, if the provider was or is charging uh, $100 a month and your subsidy is uh, $50, there's still going to be this gap. And, and at the end of the program, uh, it goes back to the $100. And so, we have a, um, a a program that seems to, um, you know, it is helpful, but is it is it enough in, in your um, position? Yeah, no, I you know, as I said, like I you know, it's 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 not enough. I mean, at the end of the day. Um, two things. I mean, first, the Lifeline uh, program provides $9.95 for broadband services, you know, before the pandemic. Now we have an emergency broadband program that provides 50. So that is good, right? And there's still much money that is to be spent to allow people to use that subsidy. So that is a great thing. You know, I'd also say that we just don't have an understanding of the fees that are charged by a lot of internet service providers, which is another issue People well, should know, um, you know, what these fees are because they add up. But at the last day, the unfortunate part is that there are just going to be people because they live in poverty that might not be able to afford service. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we forget about them and move on because, you know, we've connected a, a lot more. It just means that people are going to have to decide between, unfortunately, utilities for paying this, you know, water bill perhaps or buying groceries or buying internet service. And um, it is, it's not fair. As I said, it's, it's not equitable. 
But we have to start somewhere in terms of the money that are available that that uh, folks can use. But certainly, uh, this is a long journey in the fight to close the digital divide for low-income Americans and black communities and other communities um, across the U.S. Uh, but, you know, the, the, like I said, the $30 amount in the infrastructure bill is a lot better than the dollars and 95 cents. True. It is progress. And so we should be uh, thankful for whatever progress and then, you know, uh, get ready to to fight another day, which I think makes, makes exactly sense. continue the fight. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this may be a philosophical question for you, but um, do you think that in the all, you know, in the, in the long run, is it better to have a you know a bigger subsidy program, or do we uh, focus, or should we focus more? on giving people the tools to build their own? Hmm. Um, you know, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I certainly think the infrastructure is important. We need that uh, in place in communities. Um, and so that's a part of it. I think certainly having a larger um, broadband uh, kind of subsidy amount um, is very important so people can access it. But at the same time, yeah, it's important that people are innovators and are able to build their own tools. And it's important that they also have the resources that allow them to have the kind of devices or gadgets in order to access the actual Internet. So um, that's a, like an intriguing, complex question. But, you know, I, I think by at least, you know, building the infrastructure first and giving subsidies to people allows them to at least have the capability to go online, um, you know, with their phone for the first, you know, for the, for the initial time, um, although we know that phone is, the phone is not enough to do work and school, mm -hmm. um, but certainly having a device or being able to build uh, your own technologies is just as important as well. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Oh, I should probably make the point for the audience. Um, Bridget um, will not be able to uh, be here um, because of a family emergency. And so if you're waiting for her, uh, unfortunately, you had to bail out. But we will, we've already talked about uh, setting a time when she can come on the show. So um, I'm hoping that everything will work out well. And, and there, there we go. Um, Another uh, question, and then again, it may be philosophical or maybe it should be, you know, put up front, which is um, we give communities and individuals money for broadband or for to build infrastructure for broadband and so forth. But um, are we giving people um, enough of the other things that are necessary. For for example, if you say here's you know here's a million dollars, your community can now build broadband, which is great. But are you going to give them uh, you know training on uh, you know how to promote the network to uh, you know fix the network, um, you know to do those kinds of things that are important for making the uh, networks. 
um, and the programs uh, viable. Do you have any thoughts on, yeah. you know, on that? Should we be doing more of that? Um, I think I certainly think um, helping to create a workforce that is able to help in the build out and the um, the sustainability of these networks and infrastructure is important. I think it certainly relates to we think about um, you know the creation of jobs and the creation the the ability for people to really kind of get involved in this this sector I think is a great opportunity and I think there are a lot of uh, programs or some programs out there which are trying to do that. Um, there's a program in Ohio um, that I'm aware of, I think Cleveland, Ohio, that actually works with uh, young students and young people and teaches them how to, you know, build the, the, the infrastructure on people's houses so they're able to get a connection or that actually works with both door to door and helps families uh, sign up for services or becomes technical support um, for people who have had those kind of, you know, connected services at home. So I think um, if that's what your question is getting to or has asked, that's important and I think that's great to be training new people and to give people an opportunity to learn and how you build out these, um, these new technologies, 5G poles and all of those kinds of, that's very important. We've actually did some earlier work on that at the Joint Center report that was written by um, some scholars here before I got here. But mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a great, that's a great way. Yeah, because I was, you know, thinking about it too, that um, giving people just the um, help navigating the grant program uh, because they can be um, ex extensive, right? Um, and at the same time, there are digital programs like training and um, uh, literacy kinds of issues and so forth. And so having someone uh, help folks um, apply for the grants um, and to make sure they're in compliance and all these kinds of things, uh, it, it just seems like it should be somewhere part of the program. Uh, I don't know if you've heard any of those ideas. Um, I, I, you know, the, the ways in which I think about that is I think about just how great our minority-serving institutions like HBCUs are in helping to solve this problem. Um, I was actually on a webinar um, sponsored by the FCC and, and conducted by a federal communications commissioner, Jeffrey Starks, and some other, uh, you know, HBCU presidents who were on the panel, and we were just talking about, you know, how much that they um, stepped up and served their community during the pandemic whether it was um, being a place where people could uh, use telehealth services or, you know, trying to provide um, information and resources for students who both live in the community but attend the school. And the reason I bring up HBCUs is because, you know, they are, are, there's already a pot of money from the NTIA to um, allow those universities to develop programs to help close the digital divide. But also, mm -hmm. as state and local leaders receive this money and they think about creating kind of new partnerships or creating solutions to address these problems, I think the HBCUs are a great 
um, anchor institution to connect to. Um, you have people there who may long exist at the university and have great relationships with their surrounding community members. Uh, you have people who understand the area at universities, um, who provide services and information. Um, you know, they even allow perhaps places where, you know, folks off the street can come in and use a computer or the Internet or whatever at, on mm -hmm. their campus. Um, but the point is, is that I think there's real opportunities for universities to be able to develop solutions and programs and work with community members to address the digital divide. And as I said in other kind of conversations, they can act as a brain trust, you know, helping to advocate for specific policies at the state and local level to try to solve these problems. So when I think about the issue of people um, in within local or state governments navigating the process of writing the proposals and such like that, I think HBCUs can play a big role in helping to bolster that capacity and expertise in getting through um, those applications that will allow them to get the funding that they need to solve these problems. So one of the things is I hope there are more kind of examples from the NTIA um, that provide like uh, models that folks can replicate in terms of the best practices um, around building relationships with community organizations and anchor institutions in trying to provide digital literacy training or create programs that give people the opportunity to access the internet. So I look mm -hmm. forward to seeing what comes from that. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a lot of great work that uh, they can be involved in. Right, definitely. And in fact, um, I had Scott Woods from NTIA on the show a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that I thought was in particularly, um, you know, valuable um, of their program is that they are enabling the institutions, the colleges, to, um, in essence, create a 15-mile uh, umbrella, broadband umbrella, mm. where provide um, broadband services and training and so forth to businesses, um, uh, black-owned businesses, uh, nonprofit organizations, and so yep. forth. And I just yep. was, you know, elated because, um, you know, the, the colleges, you know, typically have, you know, have a good standing within the community. And now mm -hmm. you basically give mm -hmm. them the funds to go further and, and, you know, bring this technology to uh, the folks in their communities. And I think that that um, has a better... I think uh, potential for success um, then when we have, you know, these programs where, okay, here's your check and make sure that you comply with all of the requirements and have a nice day. Right. And that seems like what a lot of the, the agencies can be, uh, especially when they're trying to give a lot of money out in a very short period of time. But um, but to bring in and sort of create what I consider a holistic view of what you're trying to achieve, you know, sort of looking at the, uh, you know, the outcome more so than we just gave them a bunch of money, but are we actually facilitating the creativity aspect so that you create more stuff, more, you know, outcomes? I think uh, that yeah. would make, make sense. Mm -hmm. 
I think they Yeah, we actually that. know Scott Wood very well, and he's a great person, and we commend him for all the work he's been doing. And I, and I, I yeah, we're just elated about the opportunity for how engaged HBCUs can um, be in this. And I was certainly excited and have pulled out the language about working with black businesses and nonprofits. Again, people who are close to community members on the ground who have insights, yep, yep. expertise with what people need. Um, and so I think that is just going to create so much more opportunity to connect more um, folks. Yes, and I uh, agree a lot, uh, you know, with these positions and so forth. Um, one of the things that I have been advocating for the last uh, four or five years um, is uh, using telehealth as a leverage tool. For, for example, there's a city I know where um, they were able to provide infrastructure um, for 5,000 homes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we basically gave them, they gave them uh, uh, tools, you know, the, uh, the network, uh, hotspots, those kinds of things, right? And they kind of kind of threw it out there and say, hey, here's all this free stuff, right? And what ended up happening is only a 1,000 people took advantage of it, even though it was free, right? Mm-hmm. And, but you further, right, you, and you figure out they did no, uh, well, the, 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 the um, you know, the marketing folks uh, did no outreach to um, pastors, you know, in, in black mm-hmm. communities. Um, they mm-hmm. weren't doing... Um, uh, you know, on the ground kind of marketing activity. Um, and they were, you know, selling the, the concept of, well, it's, it's great and it's great technology, but it doesn't necessarily gave, it didn't necessarily give people a reason specifically. And mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like the, 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 the end result was, um, that you give people, um, stuff that's free, but you haven't given them all the rest of the package. You know, who's going to learn how to use it? How are they going to learn how to use it? Um, how are you? They're going to, um, you know, use for you know use it for specific tools. If you haven't really done anything other than to you know to give them the stuff and. Um, I think it's problematic if you don't put those other elements into the package that you're trying to sell, even when you're selling it for free. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, you need to understand what the challenges are and then be able to provide the kind of solution to solve that issue. So, you know, when we think about the rural South, uh, the black rural South, and some of the things that they're dealing with, there have been a lot of, you know, closures of hospitals in the state um, and uh, counties that we, we speak about. And in general, in the South, um, there are not a lot of specialty care doctors, actually more doctors uh, end up serving hospitals or communities in the north or in, in cities and, and mm-hmm. not necessarily um, small towns or rural uh, populations. And so you have these folks who are just kind of leaving or there are no hospitals and then 
um, people end up having to travel 50 to, you know, whatever plus miles just to access the kind of care that they need. So I think if you, like, start with that premise and that was driving towards, okay, this is why we want to provide this kind of tool or resource to people that need tele um, kind of health services, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think people would have been able to, you know, create solutions to help solve some of those problems that black Americans face in rural communities. Um, and But you also need the Internet. You also need broadband. So maybe that would have been a solution is to provide a hotspot as well as this kind of service that folks can access. But in general, I think that telemedicine is great, and we've, we've witnessed that uh, in the past, like, two years and going through the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. But like you said, you just can't throw the free equipment at someone and expect them to use it if they don't even have the kind of infrastructural tools that will allow it to work. Um, and you need to get the information out and understand, you know, why or why, you know, why people may or may not be able to access um, th- those services and what they need to be able to really take advantage of it because it is great. You know, it could be mm-hmm. an older person in a rural community who could use telemedicine um, and be connected to a doctor 50 miles away who is, uh, you know, who may be dealing with heart issues and the specialty care is not available in that person's community. So thinking about it in that way, there are also not a lot of uh, clinics that address, um, uh, what would you say, mental health issues in, in oh, our yeah. rural communities. So mm-hmm. imagine someone being able to access telehealth from home to deal with issues of depression and, and other kinds of things from their home. But again, they may not have the device uh, or they may not have the connection, which is the Internet at home, to be able to use those services. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I see, uh, I see a lot of potential in that respect, you know, using, using that, um, you know, the telehealth, the healthcare uh, aspect and so forth. And I think that um, uh, when you look at telehealth ap- uh, applications, right, they tend to be, um, they give, they sell it to the hospitals and the, the, the doctors and so mm-hmm. forth, but they give the, um, the client, the thing that is used on the patient's um, computer, right, they'll give that away for free, right? So, you know, why not form a partnership where a, you know, a vendor provides the, um, the connection capabilities for the, um, you know, for the population, um, and and sell that package. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you know, you get this this um, free computer, and by the way, we will uh, you know throw in telehealth for free. I mean, not the service, obviously, but um, I think that there's because uh, the, the, with the um, you know if you did the needs assessment, right? There are so many rural folks that have diabetes, that have obesity, that have all of these issues, and it's like they're there, you know, and and no one's talking to them about them. And and so, um, I mean, we're sort of saying the same thing twice, but I just think that it, it, you know, it often doesn't happen. So it's kind of like we need to doubly amplify the message like, hey, uh, you know, let's, you know, let's flush this out a little bit. And, um, you know, and if you can get a you know program so that uh, teens 
can learn how to fix and how to, you know, enhance the, the devices, you know, and then that creates, a, you know, positive stuff within the community and the possibility of learning and so forth. And, um, and then you have, you know, some sort of healthcare benefit, you know, even if it's just, just um, what, the, the, the knowledge, you know, like how to live a healthier, happier life, you know, is, again, just a way to, you know, get people to get involved. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've got a great business idea. Can you know? Can you imagine that? That sounds like an awesome program. Can you imagine FAMU partnering with the state of Florida to provide older Americans, 65 and older, with free devices and internet service to connect to their doctor at home, and they will provide technical assistance to set up the device in you know these older Americans' homes and connect them. I mean, that would be amazing you know how many <laughs> problems and challenges that would solve for people the fact that they would have something in their house that they could connect to their doctor and they don't have to get in a car to you know get an assessment for their illness or ailment because they don't have a car they don't live with someone they're on their own they can't afford you know traveling in a whatever bus or a taxi to get mm-hmm. there or maybe they mm-hmm. they can't even they're not physically able so i mean i think that would be fantastic you know you could you know, the other part about HBCUs or working with a university is that you can experiment. You can test these things. Universities do this all the time, true, whether it's new technology true. or conducting mm-hmm. research on, you know, what's the impact that was made by developing this program? You know, what are the ways that we can improve? What should we do different? How can we create a device that will, you know, provide, you know, Internet service to, you know, this community that has no infrastructure at all and can use this kind of, you know, pull to provide that service. I don't know, but the, the, the opportunities I feel like are endless. And I think, you mm-hmm. know, your idea that you just presented is what a, would be an awesome program that oh, thank you. <laughs> could connect. <laughs> so I hope. No, I, I, I need, I need that problem. feedback. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. one of the things, um, so I do, I have done a survey of economic development folks for over 10 years. And one of the questions I started asking in the last few years has been, do you think that um, broadband could be packaged in such a way that you can take um, low-income folks, people out of work, um, and give them uh, the, 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 the vision, the vision and also, uh, some, some help and say, become an entrepreneur, you know, it's like, take this idea about the telehealth and, you know, packaging it up and say, okay, now let's replicate that. Let's talk about, you know, doing the equivalent of creating a franchise among all of the, um, historically black colleges and, 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 and universities mm-hmm. so that, mm-hmm. what you're, again, what you're doing is you stop selling them stuff, but you give them an opportunity to create something, a business or yeah. a community business or, you know, it's like, I get really excited about this whole thing because it's like there are the possibilities are uh, endless and you have the raw talent. You have people who just, you know, they don't want to be on welfare. They don't want to be on unemployment and all of that. 
They just want a way to do things and create some, you know, uh, make a difference in their community. And we have all of the elements. We just need to put it together. <laughs> in my humble yeah, opinion. Yeah, no, I totally agree. <laughs> I, I, I can't agree anymore. And I think that's really the, that's what's great about thinking about young people and how to get them involved at the beginning and to be creators and not consumers of these kind of projects or products is that mm-hmm. they can have a, a role and a hand in actually making their communities better. And I think a lot of our young people, black and brown and indigenous and Asian Americans have ideas that we would love them better, but if we don't get the opportunity to share and innovate, um, then you don't have the opportunity to build something that could really solve, you know, some of the problems that leaders at the top, uh, you know, members of Congress are trying to solve. And so mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunities to involve people on the ground and the innovation and the um, kind of entrepreneurial sector to be able to, to get us to the solutions that we need to solve the digital divide. Mm-hmm. Great. I, um, I'm just, you know, I'm just amazed at, uh, you know, getting people just to bring these ideas to, to fruition. Um, yeah, I'm very sorry that uh, Bridget wasn't able to make it, and I hope that we can get that interview soon. But, um, Dr. Harrison, you have been a great uh, idea generator in this interview, and I just very much appreciate it. So thank you. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and hopefully, hopefully the listeners um, didn't mind having to listen to me the entire time. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, good stuff to say. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Okay, two minutes if you want. Do you have a last uh, thought for this topic? Um, you know, I, I'd say lastly, I was just in conversation with someone about this kind of relevancy question, you know. The question is about um, people will, you know, have placed a lot of emphasis on relevance as an issue as to why people do not adopt the Internet. And, you know, I think there's some myth busting there. You know, I've been thinking deeply about the question of relevancy and broadband adoption for communities of color. And I think part of the problem is how we study the digital divide. And I think often our approaches to understanding it have not allowed us to examine multiple factors simultaneously. So, you know, much Mm -hmm. of uh, the question when we ask folks about relevancy, you know, can't be captured in the kind of quantitative data uh, that we set up when we do surveys and ask uh, that question. And so when we think about relevancy, we need to think about the other kind of complexities that are attached to that question because just because someone says not relevant doesn't mean they really don't want it. It might be a cultural thing, right? It might be saying, I'm not going to tell you that I don't have enough money or I don't have the skills to access. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you it's not relevant for my life. And so Mm -hmm. I really hope that we interrogate that and not just that, oh, people of color really don't want it. They don't see the why it adds to their life. No, I think it's about how we're asking the question. And if we really dig deeper, we'll find out that a lot of those challenges are things that we're already trying to address, which is it's not available or it can't be, it's not affordable. Gotcha. Dr. Harrison, you totally rock. It's been a great way to, to wrap up this week. And I appreciate your time and I appreciate your ideas. And we'll have to do this again. <laughs> so let's keep I'm happy touch. to be back. And thank you so much, Craig. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for thinking of the Joint Center. Oh, no worries. No worries. 
Um, so have a great weekend. And to the audience, thank you as well for being here. Uh, next week, we'll be ta- uh, taking the issue of um, uh, mental health. So there's going to be a good topic on, on the element of telehealth and mental health, but also broadband and how broadband delivers this telehealth benefit. So have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. See you later. Okay.